Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, achtung, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, John McManus and James Holland. And uh, James and I have been very much hung up on the European theatre and you're doing absolutely everything you can to wrench us away from our Anglo-centric view of the war. Pull Jim out of the Mediterranean where he's currently... He's currently caught in some deep flowing river up to his neck. Trust me, I'm really happy to be moved somewhere a bit hotter. <laughs> happy to get away from Italy, get away from Casino. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, fortunately, Italy's a great place to visit now, but it certainly wasn't in the winter of 1943-44. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> and going to the Pacific. I, the Pacific is still this kind of, you know, it's it's starting to become a lot clearer. I kind of sort of feel on top of it a bit more than I did. There's certain sort of, you know, key high moments that I'm kind of pretty clear on, but there's still a lot of mystery out there. You know, it's so complicated. All those atolls and huge, great jungle-infested islands and, you know, New Guinea and, oh, my God. I mean, I've been to Guadalcanal, so that's cool. I mean, you know, I kind of, I've, I've got a pretty good handle on that. And then you've got all the kind of naval operations, but, you know, you're the master on this. It's just one of the worst places to fight a war. I mean, it's the... the like well, worse said- than a mountain in Italy in winter? I think it probably is. Actually. I mean, it's right up there, but at least there's <laughs> yeah. some level of infrastructure and lines of communication and whatever else in, in yeah. Italy. Um, you yeah. have that base point in in Bougainville. What do you have? I mean, you've got yeah, forget it. some sort of coastal settlements. It's almost sort of the, the Portuguese imperial kind of pattern of, uh, right. you know, just a few Australians there before the war and, and a few locals, um, you know, indigenous peoples. And and that's about it. So why in the world does Bougainville become important? Well, because of course the struggle for the Solomons, and right. uh, and the thinking that the Allies are going to have to deal with Rabaul, you know, yep. this great Japanese base on the island of New Britain. So they've been you know sort of trying to flank on either side, MacArthur's uh, Southwest Pacific area on the New Guinea side, and then of course uh, Halsey through the Solomons. So Guadalcanal is the best known, but then in the meantime after that you have the New Georgia campaign and then Bougainville. Yeah, and the the interesting thing about Bougainville, you know, the Third Marine Division there invades there in November 1943, and they do see some fighting, but the sharpest fighting happens in March after the Americans right. have established a perimeter. So it's so that's yeah, part yeah. of what I what I sort of come to grips with, especially in Island Infernos. Yeah, yeah, is the Army's experience fighting what is that's one of the some of the most intense fighting in the in the entire Pacific War. Why is uh, that Japanese not known? Is not better perimeter. known. Is is that just because of 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 the Marines and their dominance of of the narrative? Partially because it's an easy narrative. I I, I would compare it to like the airborne narrative in the European theater, yeah. where yeah. it's it's just easier to come to grips with the war of these episodic airborne battles, Normandy, Market Garden, Bulge, yeah, right. end of war, okay. um, yeah. versus the terrible infantry slog that is really taking place. So if we just sort of hopscotch around with the Marines, Guadalcanal, Tarawa. Uh, Saipan, Guam, Iwo, there's our war. Actually, there isn't. Yep. You know, that, that's just sort of some highlights. Uh, right. And so it's just it's tougher to get into the, the sort of nasty weeds, uh, especially the Army's war, which is doing, as, I, as I've said a million times, and I know it's obnoxious, the Army does the vast majority of the fighting. Yeah, uh, right. So Bougainville, 
I mean, it's not an important place to us now. Then it's important because of, of a base. Uh, and the Japanese want to erase that base. And so they, they come up with this ill-fated, ill-conceived <laughs> offensive to try and snuff on American perimeter. Think of this. It's incredible. It's, this, this is the kind of sort of almost nadir of Japanese generalship in the war, isn't it? It's horrible. So before we get to that, should we set the scene exactly? Because as you say, John, yeah. people don't know where it even is, you know, uh, uh, how big the island is, whose uh, administration yeah. it falls, Good all point. that. So Bougainville, is, it's in the Solomon Islands. Right. Do people know where the Solomon Islands are? Even? Yeah, I mean, the South Pacific. If you can imagine yeah. uh, Australia and you take a right turn downward, you know. And so yeah. there's all these islands that now become important because of securing the sea lanes between the U.S. and Australia, yeah. which is why yeah. there's a battle fought on Guadalcanal, basically, because yeah. the Japanese are building an airfield there would interdict all that shipping. So yeah. uh, the Allies are trying to go the other direction now, farther north up the Solomon. So Bougainville, I don't know how many miles it is from Guadalcanal, say a couple hundred or something north. Yeah. It's a huge island. Well, it's kind of northwest, isn't it? So you've got, so yeah. so just to orientate people, you've got Australia and you've got that kind of sort of pointy bit that sticks up like a sort of stalactite uh, yep. on the north of Queensland. You've got yep. Cairns and then you've got this kind of sort of jutting bit that sticks up. And then then there's a sort of comparatively a, a hop and a skip and away. And you've got the huge island of Papua New Guinea, which is now divided into oh, yeah. two. It's Papua New Guinea and Papua and West Papua. And you've got Port Moresby, which, of course, is a sort of key point. And then to the northeast of that, of Papua New Guinea, or, or off the kind of eastern side of it, you've got the Solomon Islands. It's sort of, which is yeah. sort of scrambled egg, splatches of scrambled egg. Yeah, exactly. On a diagonal yeah. that runs southeast, essentially, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a two and a half, three hour flight from Brisbane. That, right. You know that's what you're talking about. So it's a it's a it's a good old heft into into the Pacific Ocean there. It is. You know, yeah. it's a freaking long way <laughs> from America or from even Australia, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, Bougainville is important just as a base. If a ball yeah. is important, then anywhere you can have an airfield that attacks it is going to be important. Yeah, and so that's why both sides want Bougainville. The island's huge. Most of it is just volcanic. And mountainous and covered in jungle. Mountainous and jungles, and, and there's like active volcanoes, you know, in that area. But John, just to stress, the reason this is important is because these islands off the northeast coast of Australia, albeit a long way off the northeast coast of Australia, are blocking any allied naval routes from the west coast of the United States and from Hawaii to Australia. If the Japanese control those islands, exactly. If they control those islands, they can yeah. smother them with aircraft and bases and naval forces and all the rest of it. And right. you've then got a big problem because your supply lines are going to be absolutely screwed. And as we know, with the World War II, it's all about supply lines. It is. And you, so you just simply can't have that happen, which is why the Battle of Guadalcanal happens and why you have this progression. So it's island hopping from Guadalcanal to then... It's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's island hopping because, of course, there's tons of islands there and they're not going to hit all of them. Bougainville just has to be dealt with because it's the largest, I think, in the entire Solomons. Um, yes, because the largest. So, because uh, yeah. um, New so Britain is, is New New Britain's not part of the Solomons, is it? I don't think it technically is. So, no. if it isn't, then Bougainville is certainly the largest island. And yeah. uh, so, you know, the, the Americans have carved out uh, a series of air bases. It's basically like this perimeter, American-held perimeter along the west coast. You don't want the whole island. You know, you just want the important part. And the Japanese decide to attack it, being outnumbered two to one, um, if you can even imagine that. And the Americans have fortified this perimeter to the hill. So, you know, that's, I mean, that is an incredibly intense battle in a way that we could we could spend an entire show just talking about that, the particulars of the America on 37 Division battle. What I think is, is something even more significant in the long run is what you end up seeing happen with the with race in relation to this battle and its aftermath. So in March, the Japanese are foiled in trying to overwhelm this perimeter. Yeah. Complete debacle for them. In fact, I would argue probably worse than than the Guadalcanal debacles, uh, you know, that, that the Kawaguchi right. Brigade has, and then there's another terrible thing in late October of 42. Uh-huh. And so uh, Oscar Griswold, the, the American commander on site, the 14th Corps commander, is trying to kind of expand his area of influence to control some of the key hills that are going to overlook that perimeter, which means right. patrolling by April and May. In the meantime, the 93rd Infantry Division uh, has been trained and sent to the South Pacific, uh, and that is an African-American division under the segregated policies of the time. So you've got 
black soldiers serving under a mixture of white and black officers, but certainly the more senior you go, the whiter it gets. Yep. Um, and that's the sort of mores of the time. Right. Um, so these guys have initially been sent to the South Pacific and also another uh, independent regiment, the 24th Infantry, which has a great history. Uh, you've heard of the Buffalo Soldiers. Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. That's, yeah, that's one of the, the regiments that are the Buffalo Soldiers back in the late 19th century and Spanish-American War. Well, they're sent in theater. You know, they're trained as combat soldiers, but they're sent basically as laborers. Uh, you know, we're going to have you dig ditches and, and build roads and, and uh, clear swamps and unload Do ships. all the crop jobs. Exactly. Do all the crap jobs and under the supervision of white officers. It's like you've taken the, the plantation of the, the old South and placed yeah. it into the South Pacific in a way. Um, and yeah. that's the way many of the African-American soldiers perceived it. So a lot of these guys are really itching to get into combat. You know, they're combat soldiers. Mm. Um, and so they're going to get their opportunity at Bougainville first. Well, the, the interesting thing about this is that by now you've got this weird kind of coexistence in America of sort of apartheid style caste system, you know, of Jim Crowism, most notably in the South, but not exclusively there, in which you have some level of white supremacy coexisting alongside a really uh, high momentum civil rights movement uh, that is gaining a great deal of momentum. You remember when we talked about the uh, the whole Len Lease thing and the mobilization, we were talking about how A. Philip Randolph threatened a strike if FDR didn't do something about racism uh, and segregation in wartime industries and all that. Well, now you're seeing, so you're seeing like the NAACP and uh, African-American newspapers and policymakers putting pressure on the Roosevelt administration to do something about racism in the armed forces even as, you know, from Marshall on down, the leaders just want to fight the war uh, and win it. Um, and then most of them don't necessarily care about racial reform or whatever because they don't have to. Um, they're white. So what I mean by this in, in relation to the 93rd is that unlike pretty much every other unit that's going into combat, they have a, a sort of divided America invested deeply either in their failure or their success. If you're a hardcore white supremacist, you want these guys to fail because it'll show, yeah, these are lesser people. We're going to treat them as second class citizens and we're going to keep on keeping on. Then there's the civil rights folks who are heavily invested in their their success saying, OK, this shows that the that these guys will fight well and we need reform. So think about that. I mean, it's bad enough going into combat and risking your life um, and in these South Pacific climbs. But you got all that on your shoulders now, too, unlike the typical, you know, white unit going into combat for the first time. So does that mean you have officers giving his men impossible things to do? The possibilities in that are that you got officers trying to set their guys up to fail, haven't you? I mean, which is almost in some cases because you have and, this, and I'll point out, I'll hasten to point out, this is the minority of white yeah, officers yeah, yeah. I, yeah, who are like hardcore racists and and but yeah. but they also perceive that they've been put into this job as a kind of punishment uh right. they're going to take it out on their guys in a way and yeah so in some cases they're invested in their failure in other cases they're very heavily invested in their success because they they hate the racial caste system and they want their guys to prove that it ought to go away God. um and so you've got this weird i mean mixture. that's not the case of the 92nd buffalo division is it because they're they're treated like dirt um, Edward Almond, who's the uh, who's the first commanding officer of the ninety second. I mean, he's absolutely a white supremacist. He's a absolutely. he's a foul piece of work, and and it's just incredible <laughs> that someone like him, who is a kind of you know privileged, total redneck white southerner, ends up commanding them. And, and you know, the problem with the ninety second is they get over there and they're they're treated like dirt by a lot of the officers, and certainly from the top, and it all it all filters down from the top. And you know, morale is terrible. I mean, I remember talking to a guy who was a he was a staff sergeant. He was a company staff sergeant, or, or even a battalion staff sergeant, I think. You know, and he was from, I think he was from New York, or he was certainly from the north. And you know, growing up, he was educated. He'd never witnessed any racism at all in his particular corner of the United States. Then suddenly, he joins the ninety second division, and he just doesn't know what's hit him. Yep. It's, it's the same dynamic at work here, just in the South Pacific in this case. Now, the, right. the division commander isn't as bad as, as Allman. Uh, General Johnson doesn't have that axe to grind. And in fact, he's got a really good ADC 
uh, Major General Leonard Boyd, who was heavily combat experienced in World War One, who is really quite an advocate for the African American right. soldiers of that division. Um, but but the thing to remember is that in a way, regardless, uh, you have all of these folks invested in failure or success in the in the political realm, sort of watching from the wings here. Yeah. And of course, we all know who really has the power and really is deciding the agenda at this point, because, you know, it's a, it's a sign of a white dominated country on many yeah. levels. And so there's great advantages there. So, you know, but and the other thing, too, that's sort of sobering. One of the things I found in, in uh, my research about this is that the, the army did surveys uh, among the soldiers about what their preferences were in relation to integration and segregation, like of PXs. Um, you know, servicemen's yeah. clubs, things yeah. like that, even units. And anywhere between 81 and 88% of whites wanted segregated units. You know, that that's a lot of guys, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then among the African-Americans, it was almost one half, uh, believe right. it or not. Um, but, but most of the African-Americans though did not want segregated combat units, No, you know? So, right. You know, this is the mindset of the time. So Griswold sort of takes part of the division and he hooks it up with um, a, a kind of a task force style combat brigade from one of the white divisions. Um, and then they, they send him out to patrol and it's all working fine. The, the, actually, there's a great deal of camaraderie among the combat soldiers. There, there aren't really any racial issues. Um, so all fine and well until one day you have one African-American patrol screw up and run into a bad situation Friendly fire, uh, poor leadership, um, guys uh, running and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now this becomes sort of, you know, oh, we'll see. Um, they won't fight, you know, and, they, and this is why we can't have this. This becomes sort of the justification for many who want the, the continuation of white supremacy. God. To, to backbench these guys. Um, so it's not like a typical division that we'd all say when you get into combat, you're going to have situations like this. Yeah. You got inexperienced leaders, you got, you know, whatever happens to be going on. So that's my point. The 93rd is not allowed to have the, those sort of growing pains that almost any unit will probably have. We so, could, we could even study the airborne units and find yeah, instances yeah. similar to this. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if shit happens, it's inter it gets interpreted rather than, simply uh you know accepted that's an unenviable position to be in isn't it yeah it's yeah. horrible it's it's just it's, it's just this thought isn't it that you you're already having a tough enough time as it is just trying to kind of make sense of what's going on in bougainville and yet you've got this other pressure layers this a whole other thing going on about ongoing exactly. relations and your status and oh Jesus. Oh, and all the undercurrent of, of social right. tension that's there. Yeah. So about, uh, yeah, so that uh, a psychiatrist, the division psychiatrist took a survey, you know, like to, to get the pulse of what the soldiers mm -hmm. thought. And he found that about 25% of the African-American soldiers didn't know what they were fighting for. And in fact, were really against the war and didn't want to be there. And most of these guys were from urban areas where you probably would have had by then um, the Nation of Islam, like in Chicago and New York, they were really quite separatist and, and did not necessarily like the idea of fighting for the United States right. on any level. The Garveyites, you know, that, that you would have had, especially in New York. Um, and so a lot of these guys are coming from that tradition. And like, we don't even want to be here. We don't want to fight for the USA on any level. So you were seeing that. But you were also seeing other guys who who wanted to serve, but were like, you know, why am I doing this if if this is the way I'm treated? What else are black citizens doing in, in, in the U.S.? Are they working in factories and, you know, building tanks oh, and all that kind of stuff? Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of why the Allies win is the mobilization of African man, African-American manpower at home, right. too, in war-related yeah. industries. And here we have the same issues. It's like, okay, um, you know, we definitely need you to build these tanks or in this shipyard or whatever, but we're not going to treat you equally. You can't be yeah. a welder or a foreman or whatever. Here's the, the low-level jobs. And, and so that's what Randolph is trying to come to terms with when he threatens the march on D.C. He's like, we don't want to have this. And there were yeah. changes happening, but a lot of times on the backs of riots, uh, yeah. riots in Mobile, Alabama, and Harlem, and Detroit. Right. I mean, name me a place. Much less what's happening on the military side, in which you have about a million African-American men and women in uniform fighting much the same fight, you know, what they call yeah. double V. Uh, right. So 
from the 93rd's perspective, they're sort of the Petri dish of this whole thing. Right. And then when they're, when they're found wanting because of this one bad patrol, um, now there, this is becomes an excuse to sort of backbench them for the rest of the war. And what strikes right, me right, right. is that you're, you're hurting for combat manpower at times. Yeah. And yet you're not drawing on, on a lot of, on a lot of these guys. So, um, so, it, you know, it was really fascinating, um, on the sort of advocacy side, there was a correspondent by the name of Billy Rowe, who'd, who'd worked for the Pittsburgh Courier, probably the leading African-American newspaper at the time. Um, it was like the, the sort of music and entertainment and gossip columnist, fascinating dude. He was a cook's son from South Carolina who, who kind of just finds his way to, to make this amazing career. And now he ends up on frontline patrols with the 93rd in Bougainville. And so he's writing these stories about any guy who does anything right. You know, I mean, it's like this private basically defeated the Japanese army himself, right. you know? And so <laughs> it, you see this tendency to hyperbole, you know, on both sides, right. totally understandably from Rose perspective, but also on the other side of, well, there, there's one white officer who's, who he actually says to an army surveyist, he says, well, it's no use asking these guys what they think. They don't really know enough to know what, they think we we have to decide and think for them it's amazing it's also it's incredible isn't it the 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 sort of casual racism as well i mean i was talking about quentin reynolds the other day you know and he he talks about you know cheery black mess men kind of bringing out the coffee and the beans and stuff you know obviously he hasn't got a he's got no obvious axe to grind as such but it's just it's patronizing and you know reading it today it just it's just astonishing isn't it to kind of see how how kind of endemic it is even amongst sort of very very smart people and yet and yet there's lots of moments where the senior commanders are kind of clearly all for it i remember when the 99th fighter squadron comes over to north africa one of the first person who inspects them is spots he goes out and says you know you, you know your guys look great you know these look proper guys we're absolutely delighted to have you here eisenhard does the same you know, um, uh, my old friend Mark Clark. He doesn't seem to be. You know, he, he when he gets the opportunity to have a ninety second, he's all for it. He is, and it, well, and Oscar Griswold, the Fourteenth Corps right. Commander at Bougainville, he's incredibly fair minded, and and he writes. I, I found his own sort of evaluation saying, well, there, there's nothing really different about these guys. I mean, yeah, maybe they, they they're shooting too much, but that's typical of a new unit in combat. And he, he's like, it's really interesting, and I think this is also a professional assessment. Um, that, that sort of like stop the madness in a way he, he assesses he says you know any deficiencies you find any problems generally can be held up to junior leadership and and he, he's so right i mean isn't that true <laughs> of any unit i mean it's yeah, like, of course it is yeah. yeah if your lieutenant doesn't know what he's doing or you don't have good ncos you're in yeah. trouble in an you yeah. know as brand newbies and the 93rd is no different and so griswold is trying to to kind of make that professional point and human point, but also he's not in the business of sort of crusading for reformist change the way we yeah. might want him to be all these decades later. Right. Yeah. And so they run into this sort of institutional kind of inertia in which very few of the white policymakers from Stimson on down are going to say, we don't like black soldiers. We don't want them in combat, but this becomes the sort of institutional momentum and the sort of expectation because that's the way it's always been done in the past. So yeah. to change it, you'd really have to be going out of your way and not enough white senior commanders are willing to do that. Well, and and the other thing is, is they may also be thinking, I've look, I've got plenty to be getting on with as well, isn't it? I mean, it's not like they've got clear desks. Because oh, yeah. also, I mean, you're also essentially talking about engaging in what amounts to political activity, aren't you, at that point? Absolutely, in the view of many in America. And a lot of senators would be very powerful. Senators would be very angry about that. Uh, well, exactly. I mean, I think the thing that's most striking, though, as ever with this is 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 what sort of bad petrol racism is for an engine. You know, bad gasoline because <laughs> you've shipped a division, an infantry division, all the way all the way to Burgerville because you are, as you say, John, you've got a manpower crisis, and there ain't half a manpower crisis coming if you decide to invade Japan. By the way, you know that the, there's a there's a great big one a couple of years away from you and yet you get you get those guys all the way there and then the minute the opportunity comes for the for the bad actors in the system to bench them they do and it it just seems you know it's it's like i say it's such bad gasoline you're all right that's a whole division you're not going to be able to deploy properly that's 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 exactly it i mean 
uh, what I call the toxic sludge of racism. Yeah, yeah. Because the other thing is, you know, we spent an awful lot of time going, God, you know, Hitler was so short-sighted. I mean, you know, if he just didn't have a beef about all the Jews and kind of actually quite like Ukrainians, God, life would have been easier for him. Mm. But in a way, this is exactly the same, isn't it? You're letting yeah. your prejudices get in the way of pragmatism. And that's racism. Absolutely. <laughs> right. yeah. It's the toxic yeah. sludge of racism. It, yeah. it's, it's what eventuates when you are separating people on the base of race or saying to one group, you can't ascend to a leadership level because you're not really capable of that. And so we're going to build institutions around that assumption. And then you've got all the, the sort of disinformation and, and the rumor mongering and the division. So there's all sorts of that among the African-American soldiers, especially in the aftermath of the whole Bougainville patrol. Um, in one case, you know, they, they basically want to kill their, their white company commander uh, because they think that he abandoned them and he was willing to, to kill them. And then he and his uh, uh, lieutenants were covering up, uh, you know, his malfeasance. And so they're out to kill him. And I don't know whether that's really fair or not either, and so, you know, it's all of this kind of distrust that you see solidified there. It's, it's so mm. toxic. Mm. We just need to take a quick break. We'll see you in a tick. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And and tell me, John, roughly kind of what's the population, the, the proportion of black Americans at the time? Yeah, so they are about 12% of the population at the time. Um, okay, so it's not are, huge, is it? No, it's not, but they're overrepresented in the armed forces. Um, yeah. So you've got about, about 15 plus million who serve, 1 million plus uh, African-Americans serve, and of course in war industries and all the rest. Um, but what's different in a way is that among all racial minorities, it's African-Americans who tend to be singled out most for formal segregation and, and yeah. uh, you know, inequality, I guess we would yeah. say. And, and of course, we would say, well, if you're Mexican-American or, or you know, you're, you're Japanese-American, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to, to worry about on that front. Yeah. Uh, but it's really African-Americans who have it most formalized because of the legacy of slavery, in a way, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and right. Jim Crow. 
Well, because um, I was going to say, you know, I'm doing some stuff on the on the hundredth uh, battalion, which is the um, American Jap, you know, with Japanese ancestry, most of whom come from Hawaii. And my God, the way they're welcomed is just incredible. I mean, everyone goes out of, you know, John Lucas goes out of his way to say, you know, the 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 hundred battalion have come in, they'd be great, they'd be fantastic, they've really showed guts, you know, they led the way to Benevento, it was great, you know. Clark then immediately reports that to Eisenhower, says it's fantastic, these guys have just integrated brilliantly, they've been fantastic, you know, we're all so happy to have them with us, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and even in the Texans, when you know when they're landing at Salerno, you know everyone sort of goes, "Oh well, those guys are Mexicans. That's why they managed to get those crowd tanks because they're the toughest." There's an awe about them, almost. Mm. You know, the Mexicans and the American Japanese American, and the 442nd ends up as the most decorated regiment in the in the army in World War II, which is um, the 442nd. I mean, right. ends up as you know, yeah, which yeah. is of course predominantly Japanese American. Um, yep. and, and yet, you know, you have, we have to all these decades later have uh, retroactive medals of honor for African-American heroes of the war who weren't properly yeah. recognized because of their race, including, uh, you know, several guys in the 92nd division, you know, yep. which did see a lot of combat in the war, unlike the 93rd, uh, yeah. which should have, in my opinion, uh, seen, you know, a pretty good amount of combat. If you're a 93rd veteran, where are you by the end of the war? You've probably done some patrolling. You've seen some life-threatening situations here and there. You've had air raids and all that, but you're not used the way a frontline infantry unit typically would have been. Yeah. But maybe well, that's I, I think this is, just, this is just <laughs> so interesting because we've been, Alan and I have been having quite a few chats about, you know, on the back of, frankly, Italy, but but also, you know, it could be anything. It could be any of these towns that just gets obliterated. You know, what point are you as crusaders coming to liberate people? How much are you liberating them when you're kind of, you know, obliterating villages and towns and, you know, driving tanks through someone's house or something? Mm. How much are you also kind of liberating and how much are you on a moral crusade when, you, you know, you're also... Segregated uh, your, you've all, segregated your, army. your own people that yeah. you know, which you, which on on the other leg level, you're saying you know we we all want to be fret free and you know democracy and blah blah blah. I mean, it's like democracy, but but only if it suits us. But right. given America's history, none of this should really be a surprise, right? With Almond being from the South and whose family are Civil War heroes for the Confederacy, does he get the job because he's Southern and because? You know, this guy knows how to handle black people. Is what the thinking is. Is is that is that what's gone on? There's a sort of maliciousness, isn't there? There's a sort of weird maliciousness in the back oh. of it, in the background, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I think the primary reason Alman gets a job is he's a competent enough military professional. But yep. there is that kind of really kind of sickening undercurrent of yeah, he knows how to handle these people. Kind of there. That is yeah. exactly the phrase, and that, that's often what white Southerners will throw back in the face of white Northerners who don't yeah. like what they see on the, you know, in the terms of segregation and Jim Crow's and like, well, you don't know this the way we do. You know, yeah. you, you yeah. haven't lived with them. You haven't, it's all, you know, so if I come from Otumma, Iowa or something and yeah. there aren't many African-Americans there, that's what's thrown in my face uh, and might affect my perspective. If I don't know any better saying, Oh, well, I, I guess that must be true. They must know that yep. in South Georgia or something. Yeah. Um, and so that takes more sort of moral courage to take on that view and defeat it. Yeah. Um, and and so how many whites are willing really to do that? Because they don't necessarily have to. They don't deal with this kind of discrimination. You know, so that that's part of what's at work here, too, is, you know, what Ralph Ellison called uh, invisible man, that there's an invisibility about African-Americans to many whites because right. they don't have to worry about all this discrimination, racism, and maybe they don't see it every day. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I think in in historical posterity, too. There are some historians who will argue that African-Americans still remain fairly anonymous in our memory of World War II uh, and that that's a problem, too, because that that sort of has, you know, that we're not co confronting the, the actual reality of racism. So the war looks very different to a black soldier than it does a white soldier, especially in terms of that crusade that we just discussed, that idea of a crusade is not necessarily the, the idea you would have as a black soldier, especially in the 93rd at Bougainville. Yeah. And in the uh, Pacific theater where that issue kind of, what are you fighting for? Not, you know, Nazi Germany, you can construct that more easily, can't you? Uh, as a, as a message of, of what you're, you're dealing with tyranny was what are you fighting in, 
expansionist imperialism, but it's your empire you're defending from it, arguably. Right. <laughs> well, and and you're fighting against other against other non-whites, and so yeah. you might be tempted to say, you know what? Maybe I have more in common with people from Asia, with with Japanese people, than my white countrymen who are my main enemy, as you might have thought of it. Um, yeah. Now, of course. As the war goes on, I think there's a sense, too, among certainly many African-American soldiers that the Japanese are no friends of, of uh, the yeah. black man in America. Um, you know, in spite of propaganda, the realities are quite different. Yeah, the Nazis are an easier go uh, of saying, yeah, I mean, obviously these guys hold me in <laughs> yeah. great contempt and great malice. Um, it's harder to pinpoint the Japanese on that score. But so, but, so the average black soldier in the war against Japan is probably a, a laborer, a, a service guy, a, you know, a, a engineer building the uh, the Burma Road, or or uh, building an airfield somewhere in the in the South Pacific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you it's, know, it's, the other just, it's so that. interesting, isn't it? It really, it really is. Given the Allied way of war, that what you do is you use technology and engineering, and you know, you need, to deploy your airfields, you need runways. So if so, basically, the, the American war effort is built on black people's work in that sense yes because the airfields have to be built the yeah. ships have to be unloaded and loaded yeah. so that's a huge part of what the war is yeah so that labor becomes extremely important um you know you start to see this from the early days of the war in australia this is the really interesting dynamic and really kind of sad looking back on it now the yeah. Australia had the, the white Australia, whatever we'd call it, law or, or yeah, policy. policy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that's their policy as of 1942 when the U.S. Army is going to be sending guys there to, to build airfields and to, to build up in Australia under MacArthur. So initially, the Australians don't want to accept black soldiers who are, of course, going to be a big part of this effort. And, and it's the U.S. authority saying, well, yes, you're going to and you're going to live with this, whether you like it or not. Uh, you know, and so it's like, okay, you know, they're standing up for, for black soldiers. Well, the Australians ba- back down because they have to. And here come African-American soldiers to Australia. Well, guess who they end up conflicting with the most and who treats them the worst? Is it the Australians or is it their fellow white soldiers? Unfortunately, the, the answer to that is obviously the latter. And so you end up with predictably race riots like the Townsville riot in which a group of African-American soldiers basically opens fire, opens fire on you know, tents where they think their officers are and all of this horrible stuff. And it's the Australians who are treating African-Americans like equals. It's profoundly ironic. God, the ironies do abound there. If you're you're a fan of irony, you've come to the right place. And what, what does the, I mean, because pretty soon the army does desegregate after the war, doesn't it? Realizes it, it doesn't work. And then of course, by the time the Vietnam war is going on, Black soldiers tend to be um, on the sharp end more than anyone else. Two years of the amp up in 65 and 66, yeah. especially. Yeah. yeah. So what's happened is after the war, uh, Harry Truman signs Executive Order 9981, commanding the desegregation of the armed forces. But to get there, we've had to go through some pretty horrible incidents uh, of uh, black veterans being mistreated, primarily in the South. Uh, right. The most infamous, of course, is the Isaac Woodard case. Uh, okay, this, so this is a guy coming home, riding on a bus, still in his uniform. Uh, he's been overseas, I think, at least two years, served honorably, and gets into an altercation that, in, in, in retrospect, is caused almost entirely by the white bus driver, uh, who alerts the local authorities, who basically take him off the bus and beat him to a pulp um, to the point where he is blinded. And this, of course, then becomes, you know, quite infamous. The NAACP and and other civil rights organizations bring this to the attention of Harry Truman. And Woodard wasn't the only one, unfortunately. There were others, too, uh, including a couple lost their lives. Uh, And so Truman is horrified, and he becomes really quite an advocate for civil rights and for desegregation of the armed forces. But you can imagine the resistance he got. It affects yeah. the 1948 election because the uh, the segregationists leave the Democratic Party uh, with Strom Thurmond, a World War II veteran, by the way, yeah. uh, of the, the and the Airborne side, and uh, you know run as Dixiecrats and and all that. And fortunately for Truman, he's reelected. Uh, but you've got this sort of resistance to to change, which of course is going to 
characterize post-war America, but there will be change. And in Vietnam... Because they are integrated by... They're integrated by Vietnam, aren't they? Oh, yeah. And, and by Korea, by, by about yeah. the middle part of Korea and throughout the early part. But And, and uh, Ridgeway does a lot of that, by the way, the yeah. heavy lifting on mm. integration in Korea. Um, so... Yeah, so if you were a like a African American civil rights leader in World War II, you're mainly advocating for black soldiers to see combat like everybody yeah. else, like the Tuskegee Airmen or the 761st or or 92nd or whoever. In Vietnam, a generation later, it's almost completely different. You're arguing then, hey, our guys are sent to the sharp end way too much. Um, and, and so there's blowback <laughs> right. against that. And so right. that's why I, I delineated for the first two years of the Vietnam War, blacks were serving in combat units out of proportion and taking higher casualty rates. Then in response to this uh, sort of uh, reformist push, the government tries to make sure that African-American soldiers don't see combat as much. And so by the end of the war, black casualties are almost exactly in proportion. Uh, to to the the size of uh, you know the number of African Americans in the in the military force and in the society as a whole, um, but but another factor in those first two years is that desegregation had happened, and so a lot of African Americans had gone into to military careers. If you're a careerist, where do you want to be when a war is going on? You want to be in combat, especially in the yeah, army. Sure. And yeah. so that was a factor, too. There were a lot of NCOs, really good NCOs, who were becoming casualties in the 1st Cavalry Division, other mm-hmm. units like that that are fighting early on, um, and also young black officers and, and, and whatnot. That was a factor, too. Um, but in World War II, that's the irony. You wouldn't have had that opportunity, probably. No. And certainly not in an integrated unit, probably. God. Now, I'm looking at it as a military historian of seeing where this was right. in World War II, so radically different now. Uh, yeah. that the, and, and and for women too, of course, gender integration yeah. happens, and uh, and and all the other folks too who who, who are non-white, you know, who are uh, who are Hispanic or or uh, for Asian Americans or whatever. Uh, that I think the military does represent a major opportunity for them, and uh, and so you start, and I think that's what's so fascinating about World War II. This is where we really begin to see some some real meaningful change happen, and that's why I focus today on on the ninety third at Bougainville. Right. As a kind of a an example, certainly of something that went wrong, but in this sense, from a civil rights perspective, you lose the battle but start to win the war. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. You know right, what I mean? Right. The, the change does begin to happen because of World yeah. War Two. God, interesting, yeah, isn't it? I mean, one of the one of the sort of essential one of the essential issues at the end of the Second World War is you know the Atlantic Charter sort of is part of this picture. The Western Allies end up laying out their values, don't they? And once you've done that. <laughs> There's kind of no, there's sort of no going back from that, is there? Without there huge isn't. accusations of hypocrisy, and also you, you know, the, the, by the end of the war, the, the racism at the core of the Nazi project has been exposed, and racism has got some some bad press as a result. I mean, <laughs> exactly. That's so true. For want of a better way of yeah. putting it, so you have yeah. to, you end up having to confront it, and it, and it's, I think it's. I mean, it is fascinating that Truman takes action so so quickly. I mean, there's almost. I mean, is there a paper in the role of the bus driver in the American civil liberties history? Where had bus drivers felt differently about things? You, you know what I mean? Is that is that? Oh yeah. yeah well, the, the bus drivers the, were sort of the, the the sort of low level, very poorly compensated little enforcers of Jim yeah. Crowism. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so that's that was your little area of authority, your bus, in which you could tell someone like Isaac Woodard to go be in his place or whatever, yeah. you know, or Rosa Parks or, or whoever it happens to be. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where everyday racism was happening. Of course, Jackie Robinson uh, really first earns his stripes as a civil rights advocate uh, opposing bus segregation uh, on a military post in the South. And, and uh, there he's not court-martialed over this. You'll sometimes hear that, but there is a, there is a hearing, there's a preliminary hearing and all that, that makes him non-deployable with the 761st. Had he been deployed, maybe he would have been killed. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah but yeah. this is something that Branch Rickey, who's running the Brooklyn Dodgers at that point, notices in addition to the fact that Robinson was a great athlete, a famous athlete, a four-sport star at UCLA, uh, that makes him, you know, a good candidate in Ricky's view for desegregating baseball, and, and so it, I think that's wow. so fascinating. You're looking at all these kind of subplots, of the, this this great issue, which I'm not trying to say that we've solved by today. No, no, but, no. But I think we'd all agree it's in a much better place today than it was in 1944. 
but you know, so that I think that's what's the many levels that, are, that I think fascinate the three of us about World War II. All these different elements of it that we see are relevant today. Yeah, yeah, oh, hundred percent. These peculiar artifacts of the situation. I mean, that that because the bus driver is important historical figure. I think maybe I I need to go away and think about that. <laughs> yeah, the character. <laughs> you, you've, well, you've got your great men. You've got your great men of history, and then you've got your bus drivers. You know, this the it's the. <laughs> who's Your petty little real- bus driver tyrants you know exactly it, yeah. you know here's but i'll tell you what in terms of like how things can change this is the sort of upbeat part of this yeah um truman and his background okay truman comes from of course my state of missouri which was a uh, segregated state not as heavily as like alabama but there was segregation and before that of course uh, the civil warrior was a slave state okay so um truman's forebears were on the Confederate side. They were pro-secessionist. And in Missouri, it was mainly a guerrilla war. It was neighbor against neighbor. It was horrible stuff. Truman's grandmother. Isn't the Mason-Dixon line on on Missouri? Yeah, that that would be our southern border, uh, the Mason-Dixon line. And so that's what is sort of weird. We're north of the Mason-Dixon line, and yet there was slavery in Missouri. That's That's part of what was called the Missouri Compromise, uh, in which Missouri comes in a slave state. Maine is a free state, so there's a balance, you know. So, so, you know, Truman comes out of that legacy. His grandmother comes from this pro-secession home, and thus a pro-slavery home, really, in effect. Right. And pro-racism in that sense, okay, from an African-American point of view especially. And his grandmother remembered being, you know – the the depredations of federal soldiers who came to their house and all this. Okay. So Truman joined the national guard as a young man. And at that point they were still wearing the blue uniform. So he shows up in the blue uniform and his grandmother saw that and basically threatened to disown him and banished him (laughs) from the house. That that was tyranny, Washington tyranny, you know? And, uh, and of course it represented maybe a little bit different, you know, era of racial relations, uh, you know, to the betterment, in my yeah. opinion. But uh, so Truman comes out of that tradition, that segregationist tradition, and yet he really completely changes as president. Uh, not that he was a virulent racist, but he was like, you know, Jim, you mentioned earlier the sort of casual racism of the time and all that. Um, Truman was sort of like that, but also extraordinarily fair minded. Right. And to him, it was, especially as a veteran himself, it was horrifying. The idea that that veterans who had served honorably would come home and be treated this way by their countrymen, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. demanded action and justice to him. I mean, I'm just so struck by this this whole point about, about the sort of moral crusade, you know, the crusade in Europe, the crusade wherever you are, this sort of idea that 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 the Allies are on the force of the right and, and not the right, the force of right, righteousness. And it just gets very, very murky, doesn't it? Well, it is, because <laughs> think of who you're allied with, too, the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, was, I didn't. I didn't want to bring. Well, that that's, up. A, that's a whole another. That's a whole another conversation, isn't it? I mean, you, know, you have to be. I'm not saying they should yeah. have been, but I'm saying that is one of the most murderous nations in human history. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so you're allied with them. Of course, Shanghai Sex China. That, that's yeah, not much changed. Choir boy kind of situation. Either. Well, I mean, I mean, we started in Bougainville. After all. What assistance are the Soviets giving the Americans with their enemies in the Pacific theater? Well, almost none. It's um, none. It's not. It's not. <laughs> almost none and, until August 9th, 1945. It's, it's almost negative none. It's yeah, negative yeah. none. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, that changes August 9th, 1945, I guess, in fairness to the Soviets. But they're getting a lot of that deal, too. Yeah. Well, well, once it's clear which way it's going, the Soviets decide to pitch in so they can make a grab. But, I mean, you know, that's the that's the extraordinary thing, isn't it? Is 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 after all, without being, you know, getting into moral relativism, there's still the the better side. It's just <laughs> if you've got to pick one, I mean, the alternative is you Nazis, Jim. I mean, well, yeah, and it's also all the just the sort <laughs> right. of it's a, it's it's also the sort of you know the casual the casual violence and disregard for for other civilians when you're in you know because your standards have dropped because you're in a brutal bloody war where your mates are getting blown to pieces. Yeah, you know. There's some Italian family there or some, I don't know, some Belgian or German or French family or something, and you're hungry and they've got a larder full of food and you just think, right, I'm going to have that. Yeah. You know, stuff you. I'm fighting for you. That's it. Yeah. Well, and you see the same thing eventually, like in the Philippines. You know, you're liberating the archipelago, but you're having to destroy portions of it. And and that's the terrible dilemma. You know, once you're you're having to liberate countries that have been conquered by your adversaries. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, so yeah, I mean, and I, that's one of the things I try to emphasize in my World War II class with the students is think about the price paid by the liberated, by the French, yeah. uh, by the Belgians, by the Italians, certainly as we would think of it. I don't know if a fascist Italian would think of it, but we're saying, yes, the Italians. I mean, by the Filipinos, whoever, and by the way, by the Papuans, yeah. by people in Bougainville, uh, yeah. you know, all of whom were not real pro-Japanese, the allies for all their racial baggage were treating locals better than were the Japanese too. Yeah. yeah. And so like you said, I mean, the allied side is really flawed, but it is probably higher on the moral scale in spite of Soviet depredations, American racism, British imperialism, French yeah. imperialism, yeah. Um, Chinese depredations, all that we'd say. Right. I mean, it, but I, I think that's just reality. That's the world. Um, nobody's hundred percent good or moral or whatever. It, it's when people venture, you know, currently when people venture arguments about fascism in Ukraine, for instance, which that comes up, Banderites and stuff in Ukraine. It, no side's perfect. This is so, so fascinating, uh, John, to, to go from Bougainville to this sort of, um, you know, here we are tussling with the very meat and veg of what it is to study history and uh, uh Congratulations. <laughs> it is fascinating. And, you, and, you, and you, of course, all these years later, you try not to be like to like the moral police or whatever. Tiss, tiss. You were so terrible back then. We know better now or something. I mean, yeah, a hundred yeah. years from now, they're going to be looking at us. And I'm sure there's a ton of things we're doing that. Maybe oh, the vegan, the vegan okay planet that our great, great grandchildren <laughs> <Right>. live on. <laughs> exactly. So, so you have to have a humility about it too. I think, don't you? That, uh, it's like, okay, but, but I also think you have to identify this because if you don't, um, I'll tell you one thing that has had real consequences in this country is the whole lost causism of the civil war. Uh, the South fought this wonderful fight yes. and they were wrong to secede, but they had this wonderful way of life. You know what? That was used as a way to undergird Jim Crow and hold off civil rights and, and all that for generations. So history yeah. matters in terms of shaping the message. But also, I think as historians, we have to have a, a humility too and understand that people are products of their times. And and they sometimes have to make these tough dilemma choices or they don't see it the way we do. They don't have the perspective, just as, just as we won't measure up to people 100 years from now. But that's the nature of studying history, I guess. Absolutely. Well, thanks, John. That's um, uh, from such an excellent hop-off point. We'll have to talk about the actual Bougainville counterattack at some point. Oh, yeah. We'll go deep dive into that because it's amazing from a combat perspective. Yeah. It's mm. incredible. Have you ever been there? No, I haven't. Did you go there when you went to Guadalcanal? No, but, yeah, my wish. Yep, absolutely. One day. Well, we can all dream. Um, uh, thanks, everybody. <laughs> thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, uh Oh, I enjoyed that enormously. Uh, thanks, John. Thanks, Jim. We'll see you all again very soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. See ya. See ya.